Welcome back to another episode of Half Latch and Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Alex, Adam, and I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be talking about a pretty interesting concept. One I've, as we're bringing it up, I've kind of started to think about. I'm like, I guess I never really thought of it as this way. But go ahead and lead us off, Father Dale. What's the topic for today? <laughs> yeah, this is a a very eye opening, mind opening, spirit opening topic. And before we directly call it what it is, because I think if I were to use some terminology to try to describe it, we would end up at the outset, create unnecessary misunderstanding. Sometimes misunderstanding is necessary because it's how you create good dialogue. Like Jesus does that all the time. He says stuff he knows they don't understand to get them asking questions. So sometimes that's appropriate. Uh, but I think with this, let me, let me, let me flip things around and we'll, we'll kind of lead into the to the topic this way. And I'll start with a question to you guys, all right? Which came first, the liberal, theologically liberal reading of Scripture or the fundamentalist reading of Scripture? I think it was the liberal reading of Scripture came first. And if our, our listeners haven't caught it yet, we're going to be talking about how we read the Bible, but we're going to talk about more than, quote, reading as we think about it. So you're, Alex, you're saying the, which one was first? Liberal. Okay, Caleb, what do you think? Just say the opposite. Just don't. I'm going to say my reasoning fundamental because you I'm have like, to get some sort of basis down before you can start going crazy on the other side of things. Because well, liberal, liberal doesn't mean crazy. Well, no, I meant like to freely think about something, you know, in different ways, like to challenge. You're just you saying know, that because you went to a Baptist uh, high school. Well, well, you know, I mean, they, <laughs> they were non-denominational but heavily Calvinistic. <laughs> they had a good website, so you knew they were. <laughs> they threw tulip on the board. I was like, oh baby, let's go. That is a good point because uh, liberal ha- liberal is a, uh, com- a comparative perspective, though, if you think about it. So yeah, I don't mean it in yeah. a pejorative way. I'm not. I'm not talking about something like that, but the school of thought. Which was first, the liberal reading or the fundamentalist reading? I'm going to be the the curveball here. I'm going to say they were both coexisting at the same time together. Well, they were, ish. Well, one is obviously a response to the other, so there's got to be some you know coexistence. It's still present, by the way. Okay, okay. It's the liberal one. Boom, $5. It's the, it's the liberal reading. And say, wait, I thought fundamentalism, because fundamentalism, the fundamentalist way of reading the Bible is how it was read by the apostles. Um, LOL. N- no, no. And and not by the early church. So what is broad brush strokes here? What is the liberal reading of Scripture? When does it start? We really see it start to blossom in the 1800s, latter portion of the 1800s as a result of higher criticism. So higher text criticism, and many of the early higher text critics were were people of faith. I mean, they were not anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-church folks. They were interested in the sourcing, like where did the documents come from? How were the documents written? How were they preserved? And in the process of doing that, the next generation, so to speak, or the next step in thought, which is a logical progression, is that if these texts are not divinely inspired and they're just compiled by well-intentioned people, then they are historical documents that can be changed or that have application only to the history in which they were written. That's what is created through that liberal reading of Scripture in that sense, okay? And then the fundamentalist response that starts in the early 1900s is to say, no, every word is literally the word of God, and you have to interpret it at its face value. 
those things don't happen in the same sentence or in the same year. But it's uh, we're trying again broad brush strokes. How do we collapse this into a you know forty five minute podcast? <laughs> so you start. It's the liberal dismantling of how the text came together, or in their mind, you know the proper way of how the text came together. I give an example uh, for those that may not know. There was one Old Testament scholar named Wellhausen who talked about the JEDP saying that there are these four different sources that compile the Old Testament books commonly attributed to Moses, right? And so then, well, when did that get written? And they say, well, during the exile. The unintended consequence, and then what becomes the intended consequence, is that Moses didn't write the Old Testament, and so all the references to Moses writing the Old Testament are, are not really true, even though they're mythically accepted. Okay, well, if the Bible has those kinds of myths that are accepted by the people, then what's that mean? Well, that means that the virgin birth probably isn't true. That's just a way of saying Jesus was really important. Oh, well, then the miracles aren't true either. That's just a response of writing by the gospel writers to show that Jesus is bigger than pagan gods. And then, therefore, the resurrection didn't happen. And so you get all that stuff kind of swirling around seminaries and higher education in the 1800s into the early 1900s. And then you get a response by the fundamentalists that come back and they they take the text so literally they don't take it seriously. That's fundamentalism. So you take it the the face value so literally you don't take it seriously. And we don't want to engage in either one of those readings. There is merit to the higher text criticism and trying to figure out where certain texts came from, you know, to talk about the uh, the source of the gospels, you know, what what was the common source, the Q sayings as as it is. There's merit to those things. But all of that needs to be done within the sound of church bells, within the confines of the church itself, because that's where the Word of God is preserved and respected as the Word of God. So I think when you start to crack open the ideas there of the theological reading, understanding on a liberal perspective versus fundamentalist, a lot of fundamentalists or people in fundamentalist, that sounds, fundamentalism isn't even what it was in the 1950s. The descendants of fundamentalists, I think, are the guys that are going through a lot of the deconstruction right now, but they're not even gravitating towards the liberal side. They're just completely deconstructing Christianity. And so you see the effects of both. What does theological liberalism generate, and what does fundamentalism generate, you know, three generations, four generations later? We're watching them both bear the same fruit. Well, then that brings up this question, and I think you were kind of hitting on this, Alex, and Caleb was too, like, well, it's got to come from somewhere. Well, how did the church read Scripture before these giant juggernaut uh, tectonic plate conflicts between the, the liberal reading and the fundamentalist reading? Is there another way? Yeah, and that's what we're, we want to talk about today, and that is the, a sacramental reading of Scripture, or the, um, the ontology, the being. What is the Word of God written, as we say it is in the, in the 39 articles? What is it? So is the Scripture merely history? Or is it something else? Because if it's merely history, well, then it only applies to its immediate context. And all your study then is to figure out immediate context and then to try to explain how it either applies or doesn't apply to today. And that is a deficient. You, you, want, to, you want to take into those, those principles in your reading seriously, but if that's all you're doing, it's very deficient because you're failing to understand what the Word of God written is. I'll make a comment on that, especially about Wellhausen. Um, you know, that, that was coming out 
reading that in the 1800s, I took a, a philosophy class, a Christian philosophy class uh, in my seminary. And I, I go to, uh, it's, a, it's a conservative seminary. Uh, I think you went to the same one, Father Darrell. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in the middle of it. but uh, Con- Conservative compared to other seminaries. Correct. Yes. Yes. And uh, I, I remember we were, actually, it wasn't in my philosophy class. It was in an Old Testament class. It was an Old, Test- Old Testament intro class. And the word introduction, that's not really what it means. Uh, it's a, it's the German word for introduction, meaning like, we're going to show you everything in there. So we did um, we did a lot of, uh, um, we had to do, they called them presses, and we would have to read uh, a large text from somebody, and then we'd have to write it literally in a paper so we could just make it in a succinct statement of what, it, what he was trying to say. And the first week was, was Wellhausen. And that, I tell you, if you guys want to read him, grab a snack, grab a drink, grab some coffee, grab a lot of stuff and sit down and take the next, you know, two days to try to chew on what he's saying. I mean, he, he throws some stuff out there that is big. And, you know, I was trying to, and I remember talking with, about this with you, Father Darrell, when this was happening, because I was like, I was like, are they saying the scripture's not real? Are they saying this didn't happen? You know, so like for me, that was the first time that I ever really experienced that, like the, the, the empirical data, empiricism, trying to see why we do something, you know, because, you know, in the enlightenment period, everyone had to have a reason for, for stuff. And of course, that's important. You know, that's what we're talking about. But just trying to really see, I don't, I don't think that we were necessarily taught how to read scripture from that at all. That wasn't the point of it, but just introducing these ideas. But, you know... Well, it, Alex, that's one of the big differences, is that the, a fundamentalist Christian cannot ask the question, why? Right. They're, they're taught not to ask why the scripture says what it says, or how did it come to be the right. scripture, right? The liberal will ask the question why, but in asking the question why doesn't doesn't come to the answer, doesn't come to a biblical answer, doesn't come to a Christian answer, comes to something else that's more ingrained from the present culture. So how do you ask the question why and get the biblical Christian answer? Enter the fathers of the church. Right. Yeah. Even like with, you know, people that are close to me. You know, they they wouldn't talk, or at least they they they're under the understanding that they can't ask why. You know, and that's why they're coming to a deconstruction period because there's a lot of things that just don't add up. I know that happened for me and you, you know, and probably you, Caleb. You know, yes. but like we were always afraid to ask why. Like, oh, you just have to have faith. You just have to have faith. You just have to have faith. And like, you know, I I've gave counsel to you know probably a lot of teens, you know, I don't know how many, but like, you know, probably a hundred teens and say, it's okay to ask why, you know what I mean? You got to have to the point where you're having that moment, like, um, like Jacob, like, okay, this is my father and my grandfather's father or God, you know what I'm talking about? God. And then they realize like, okay, okay. He's my God now. And you have to have that moment when you grow up like the, and fundamentalism is not just one denomination, obviously. You know what I mean? Like, in my mind, I kind of think of it as as one. But the, that reading of Scripture is kind of how I grew up, you know? And not not only that, but I even, you know, remember getting to to Bible college, and it was just this simple equation of J-D-E-P equal bad. Yeah. Like, that was it. Like, you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to talk about the merit. You're... You know, and I remember even getting to my, so that was in my theology classes. And then I got to, um, like my Hebrew class and we start looking at it. It's like, yeah, this is kind of sus. Right. Like yeah. maybe, maybe this isn't as far out and, you know, left and left field as, as we thought. 
um, and start, actually started to talk about it. But the, the best part about it was, well, we were approaching it linguistically. That was the whole point of that, that discussion. But also, it had confounds. Like, at the end of the day, all our presuppositions didn't come from, wow, that's weird. That's a, a, a late Hebrew term or late Hebrew conjugation or late Hebrew uh, form. Right. Uh, therefore, uh, it is not inspired. No, we went from the presupposition of that it was in, it was in, it was inspired text and that it was the word of God and it it set parameters and so I experienced both really unhealthy ways to discuss these things and then I experienced really healthy ways uh, to do it that were within the confounds of the church and how it should have been. And I think that's the big thing is where it's the confines that you really find that it's happening because even with most of the schools that are going on today, even different universities, even whether it be secular or Christian. You'll have where there's just this crazy ideas of thought. That, and I say crazy, I don't mean like, you know, insane. I mean, just like be like new ways of thinking. I know I'm using the word crazy wrong. But the whole point of the uh, university or the educational environment is to actually, you know, have these people in here, have these questions and have these ideas. But then, you know, I don't want to say corral, but then to guide and shape so that way you build logic within it. Right. Whereas, and I feel like that's maybe if you don't, literally give somebody some reasons or let them practice that why in that controlled environment, that's where you're going to start having a lot of like chaos and mayhem. And mainly it's, I, it's, I think it's mainly just the, and that's the, even what we were talking about before. It's the place you have to have it at and how are you doing that and how are you setting up those rules? Because otherwise, if you don't have that practice, you're just going to go off and all these crazy, yeah, people start <laughs> right. coming up with crazy stuff because right. they never really were taught how to logically think about something right. because they're just told don't. Well, like Father Darrell, he says it all the time. You know, the problem is seminary, the professors are not stopping those ideas. Right. Like, there's nothing wrong with having those ideas. Well, maybe, but... <laughs> well, no, there's there's not. There's there's issues with having those ideas. Right. And then when the church corrects, not saying, yes, I will submit to the, to the church, to the councils, to what they have concluded. That was all these councils we have. It's not the issue they came up with these ideas. It was the end result that they did not submit these ideas to the church. Right. Well, it's funny. On Sunday, we had uh, our installation service. We are officially a congregation here at Church of the Ascension. Woo! Woo! So uh, I, one of our, our uh, the the priest, the rector from our mother church, uh, he he shared a sermon. And uh, in it, he was talking about gifts and spiritual gifts and the qualifications of, of being um, a leader, a rector, or whatever. And uh, I remember he was saying that, not many of them are having anything to do with your own skill or talent. You know, most of it just being obedient, whatever. But the ones, the talents he did say is being able to preach against heresy, you know, yeah. and that, that really struck with me. Like, do we know what is, what is orthodox and what is unorthodox? I think so. But like some of the little nuance, like some of the little things, like I, I, I remember in, in some of my other classes, just talking about the t different types of heresy. And I remember sitting down with father Darren, I'm like, I don't, I don't see why this is heresy. You know what I mean? Like, and then just breaking that down for me saying, okay, well this, this, and this, this is why it's wrong. I'm like, okay. But a lot of it is like borderline. Why it's wrong is a borderline slippery slope argument. Absolutely. That is still true. Uh, Cause we're talking about second, third, fourth effects. Right. So it's really interesting. Even like right. talking about these things, um, you know, like as he was alluding to some of these ideas that were happening and, and floating around, we're in the third, fourth, fifth effects of it. Right. Of, you know, and then even um, trying to engage these ideas that we're in a completely different mindset. Um, we're not in a modern world set that that was in. 
we're not even in a postmodern world anymore. No, we're not. Um, so, I mean, we're like almost two major world philosophies away from these ideas. And so we really are. It's the same thing because there was no definitive statement said towards these things. I'm not saying it has to be against because that's not what everything is about being against. But nothing was – these things weren't properly addressed. I mean, we're getting more and more hostile with our worldviews. Like, I remember postmodernism, you know, I mean, really, I mean, I don't think I was really, I was part of it, but I wasn't old enough to really understand. But like, I miss that where we could agree to disagree. Like, it was okay. Like, you know, Caleb, I disagree with you all the time and that was okay. I disagree with me too sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's coming back though. Um, I read a, a study talking about millennials and uh, their perspective of disagreement. Yeah. And uh, millennials as a generation, uh, the majority of them, if someone disagrees with them, then they take that as an insult. Right. Um, like if you if you disagree with them, then you are judging them. Right. And you're um, invalidating them. You know, versus um, generations before. And you've actually some of the studies of um, even though you're dealing with a younger demographic without fully formed thought, you can still kind of get the idea. But on both sides of millennials, uh, you don't have that. They, they believe that you can disagree with somebody. And not be judging them. I don't know. I don't. I, just sing. Just with the Gen Zs that I do know, like, and they're close to me, like their family. You know what I mean? And like, they don't get offended at the things I say. Um, usually, I could be offensive. You guys, you but you guys have both been my friends for both most of our whole lives. But she said we we talk a lot about worldview and things like that because she's at a liberal uh, university. She's getting uh, she's working on her master's degree, so she's a very intelligent girl, very woman. She's very intelligent. She just turned twenty one, but like I I really wanted to get the understanding of what she was thinking. Like like what do you, what do you think when I talk when I'm saying this and like because you know she's struggling with her worldview and struggling with who she is because she she grew up in West Virginia for you know for eighteen years and then goes off to a liberal university in New Jersey. And then like everything just, you know, her whole sh mind is shifting. She's had that deconstruction like we talked about because she grew up in a fundamentalist way saying you can only think this way and don't question anything. Just believe what we say. And that's dangerous. But just trying to understand her mindset has been interesting seeing like invalidation. And it's a lot about personal feelings about stuff. Like if you're invalidating me, you're hurting me. You're hurting my feelings. And I try to explain to her like you're going to have people disagree with you. And people are, are never going to do what you expect them to do. Almost never. They're never going to do the right thing, you know? And if you come to Is that to it, pessimism? No. But if you come to it, <laughs> if you come to it with that understanding, you'll realize, okay, we're just having a good argument here. We're just having a good talk. Cause I, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I always used to teach. I used to tell, especially this one kid, because he would always get upset. I said, the only person you can control is yourself, buddy. I always said that to him, like, buddy, you, you can't control anybody else. So that's that's just realizing that like you that's just how it's going to be you know and, and maybe it is pessimistic I don't know maybe, for me it's comforting to me I don't know you, you do call people buddy when you're trying to correct them by the way I do but, I hear you say that all the time you'll listen, be saying something buddy. to someone and you're like buddy listen but in my defense they're either related to me or they're the youth of the church or they're really wrong <laughs> or they're just your buddy <laughs> true right Adam my buddy I'm waiting for the rebuke. <laughs> Well, let's let me let me bring it back around this way, and I appreciate the the comments. Um, when I was in Bible college, right? So I was in Bible college. Now, the church where I I didn't come to the Lord there, but I've got I got discipled there was on the the fundamental side. I wouldn't call it fundamentalist, but on a very literal reading of Scripture, and that's very helpful. We want to take the Scripture literally, but again, not so literally we don't take it seriously. 
So strong belief and conviction. This is the word of God. And the spirit confirms the word of God. All of that's true. But when I got to Bible college, this was the question I had when I was a sophomore. Why these 66 books? What is it about these books that makes them the Bible? Because it was at that point I started learning more about other gospels and other source material. So uh, we mentioned the JEDP and all of that. When I was in Bible college, we studied all of that stuff. Uh, and so in seminary, it was just like, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we talked about this in Bible college. Um, and so that was the question I had. But who could I ask? Because I wasn't asking because I disbelieved. I was asking because I did believe, but I wanted to understand how did this take place. And there wasn't an answer. I'm, I'm not saying my professors didn't have an answer. I'm saying I didn't know where to go to get the answer. I didn't, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of who to ask. Um, and so it was then I started looking and reading over uh, the formulation of the canon, how that happened in Christian history, and how that took several hundred years. People get really uncomfortable with that. Well, to kind of bring that up to being an Anglican, it's in the 39 articles. There's an entire article written about these Old Testament books, these New Testament books, and then the, quote, other books. So we do have Anglicans that would read the Apocrypha as just as inspired as the other books, and then others who would say, well, no, it's not inspired. It's just good theological reflection on those books. But both must agree, based upon our formularies, which are lifted from the early church practice, these are books that should be in your Bibles that you're reading and making regular use of, okay? Uh, there was, I forget which Archbishop of Canterbury, was it Was it Whitgift? There was one of them who was being pressed by Puritans not to publish the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books with the others. And he said, no, that's never going to happen. We're always going to do this. And that's how it should still be. So that takes us from there to, okay, over the multi-century experience, here's how we get these books as scripture. And I want to focus more on the 66 than I do the Apocrypha, because the 66 it, this is the Word of God written. Well, this takes us into what is a sacramental reading of Scripture. Now, I have been told that a, uh, a book was written about this a couple years ago. I have not had a chance to read it, but it's been recommended to me. So if you have read, uh, I believe it's Hans Borsma wrote about this. If you've read about it and I'm echoing him, well, I don't know it. <laughs> uh, but in an attempt to capture the fathers of the church and then the reformers, how do we understand the Word of God written? And we understand the beingness, the ontology of the Word of God written, the way that we would, in a certain sense, understand the Incarnation. Is the Word still human? Yes. And what's his name? Jesus. Of? Nazareth. Right. So you see there's the historicity. There's the real, tangible, historical event, the flesh, the body of Christ— but is that the limit? No. Is that the limit? What do you mean? In regards to? <laughs> is Jesus of Nazareth the limit of the body of Christ? Is he, is he the only, like, what is the body of Christ? I mean, it could represent a few things. The, the church? Is that what you mean? Or do you mean like Jesus himself? Pre press the language. Press it for a moment. Press the idea. Jesus of Nazareth is the word incarnate. Right. The logos. Yeah. But what is the body of Christ? What is the body? Well, it would be the people, right? The church. The whole church. The whole church is a constituent member. Think think of yourself as a cell in the body. Every every member of the body of Christ 
Jesus of Nazareth is the head of that body. And now when we say body, we're talking not just about a gathering of people, but a real ontology. Right. Peter says that we have become partakers, sharers of the divine nature. And how do we in our beings become sharers in something divine since we are born dead to God and in sin in this Ephesians 2. How, how do we become alive to God by becoming part of Christ? See, so that's ontology. So what's the Bible? What's, what's the scripture have to do with that? Because the Bible isn't written as just an, as just a, a historical record. And that's where the, that's where the liberals get it right and where the fundamentalists are getting it wrong. Is there history? Yes. But there's a way to understand the history. And there's meaning to the history. So there have to be historical facts. But what does it mean? And you see, the meaning of it is the word of God written, right? So this isn't just some kind of uh, Judeo-Christian mythology that is good truth. That's for our truth and your truth and my truth. All that goes out the window. Because Jesus of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, stands as prophet as priest, as king, as judge over everything. Everything rises and falls in its relationship to him. In the same way, then, every culture, every community, every individual rises and falls to scripture. Now, he is not scripture. There's a difference, but there's a connection between what is the word made flesh and what is the word made letters. Right. Okay. And so, this is really important because now take let's let's zero in on the Old Testament for a moment. When God gives the law to Moses, whether or not Moses is the author of the Hebrew text itself, Moses is the historical figure behind everything that's going on in those first five books. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, for those who think who've never heard that idea, the Hebrew, from what there are some scholars who disagree, but the Hebrew that is in the first five books of Moses didn't exist in the time of Moses. Did you already say, you already yeah, say that's that? What we're okay, about. Yeah. so there, there's there's a lot of stuff you can get into here, but there's got to be a historical figure. Moses is the historical figure here, right? When God gives the law to Moses, and Moses is writing out the law, he's doing more than just putting pen to sheepskin or however he's writing it. You know, no, there's actual construction of material, and then you have to through ritual enact what's being commanded. So there's no way to have the word written without the form that it generates. Right. So they go hand in hand. So the scripture instantly, the moment it's written, instantly creates a necessary form and a necessary tradition. They, they, all of this stuff goes together. In our, in our understanding theologically, we'd say the word of God is what is inspired. This is, this is the word of God that holds everything together, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It necessarily generates a form and generates a tradition. Okay. The problem that you run into later on is they elevate the form and the tradition to being more important than the written scripture. And then when you do that, you end up nullifying it because you don't obey it anymore. See the problem? So, and Jesus gets into that with the Pharisees. But here, here's, here's what I want to emphasize about what's, what is written. And Hebrews expands a lot of this for us. When the old, when the priest, the high, the old, the, Old Testament, the, the high priest of the Old Testament went into the temple, flesh and bone, he's walking into a temple. Right. But what does it mean? What does it mean when he does this? What's, what's being signified according to Hebrews? I'm not sure what you're asking. He's a type and a shadow. Okay. Of, of Jesus. Of being. Right. 
of reality itself, of heaven and reality. People get, uh, the early Christians get, get uh, theologically flogged since the Enlightenment about being Neoplatonists. But you can't read Hebrews and not recognize that there's a distinction between heaven and earth, and God is the creator of both. And there's that heavenly reality that's unchanging. That's ontology. And then God creates the physical material world. And part of the, the fall is that the world changes in ways that it's not supposed to, specifically that it tends towards decay and death. But it still is a broken reflection of being. What is male? What is female? Right? Those, those are the principles of being. What is life? What is death? What is Christian? What is Christ? What is not? And so you got you have this this presentation all through scripture. What is the city of God and what is the city of Babylon? And in Revelation it's depicted as two different women, right? right. One on top of the moon, you know, and the sun and everything, and the other sitting on top of a beast. Right. So you get the pictorial representations here. Because what are what is it showing us but being itself? What what Nate what the, the invisible world is? When we're reading the gospels. We're not just going back and reading historical accounts. We're reading about something that is the manifestation, that word epiphany, the, the appearing. It is the, the manifestation in flesh of spiritual reality that doesn't change. Take, for example, the transfiguration. When Jesus is on the top of the mountain and his face begins to shine and his clothing changes, the, the writers of the Gospels, the, three, the synoptics, they're showing us this is what he really is. It doesn't mean that he's not really flesh. He's still, we're not docetists. We're not Gnostics. He's, the word is genuinely becoming flesh so he can redeem it and restore it so that the material natural world is healed so that as it is healed, it is a better reflection of heavenly reality as opposed to the underworld. Scripture talks about what's under the earth and, and the decay and everything that's associated with that or, or the abyss in the revelation. Okay. Um, you get these these pictures set against each other. There's Christ on the mountaintop shining in his glory, flesh and blood transfigured, right? This is what it's supposed to look like. But then what do you discover? But that the light from his face is revealing people that aren't seen, Moses and Elijah. So you've got, the, you've got those that are in Christ that are, quote, dead, and you've got those that are living that are in Christ, but they're all in Christ. Right. So this goes back a little bit to the communion of the saints, and I'm not trying to talk about that specifically, but to say that is an ontological reality, so that whenever the church gathers for the Eucharist, this isn't just some bread and some wine and some nice clothes or the lack thereof, uh, while we pray some written prayers. No, there's a beingness that's being constituted, that's being called to mind because of the ritual that's being perpetuated, because remember, ritual is form. And the word written always creates a form, and then the Spirit quickens that. He's present in it. This goes into how we're reading Scripture. Again, if we read it from the, the liberal perspective, then we, we cease to understand it as the Word of God because it's just compiled by historians and has no church behind it. Uh, you end up with Matthew not writing Matthew, Luke not writing Luke, John not writing John, uh, not even knowing what books constitute the canon. Because you, you, you end up um, leaving the church aside. You set that aside. And then the fundamentalist side, you read it and you emphasize it as singular historical events with a, one, a grand narrative, but a singular historical events that has some, some sort of resonance today. But you get overly literalistic with it. 
and you so and because of that you miss the point so you don't see these much bigger ideas behind it that are being preserved and perpetuated by the fathers and we want to be conscious of this when we're reading scripture because we don't want to fall into the error of innovating and both fundamentalism and liberalism are doctrinal innovations yeah and we could get into specific kinds of innovation um that are outgrowths of both of those all of it is as because it is an innovation in this sense is a violation of what is present in heaven and this is where we we need to guard how we read scripture how we interpret scripture and then how we celebrate what scripture says as liturgy you start changing liturgy you're going to start changing doctrine and you will then go back and say well those scriptures don't apply why don't they well, because the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing. Oh, so the Holy Spirit's doing something now that he's never done before. Wait a second. I think I read about that in the days of the Old Testament with the kings when Jeroboam built two new temples and created new priests. And he set up the images because the law of Moses was given centuries ago. So it doesn't apply anymore because here's really the gods that brought us out of Egypt. See, it's all there in the text of Scripture because it's more than just historical record. It is the Word of God written. It doesn't change. Everything rises and falls to it. And if you take and you look at the church across the, the, the board right now in the West, look at, find a megachurch, find, find like megachurch meaning the size of the people, find a big one. To the extent that that church adopts certain forms of innovation determines the longevity that it's going to have. It determines its impact. It doesn't mean the Lord writes it all the, all the way off, right? I mean, hello, I put this on Facebook the other day. Read First Corinthians. Look at the absolute baptism of sinfulness <laughs> that these folks are still engaged in, and Paul is confident that God's going to get them to, the, to, to heaven blamelessly. Even if it's through the fiery judgment seat, he's going to get them there blamelessly. <laughs> so we, 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 you know, we, we, I'm not trying to present that kind of picture. But to say that the beingness, the ontology of Scripture, and then to the extent that we want to uh, gravitate towards innovations, whether they're big umbrella philosophies or smaller changes, um, that in our in our in our adoption and promotion of them, we end up undoing the text of Scripture. That's when we need to be quickly aware that even if our motives are true, we're making a, a very grave mistake. And I think we have to take that into genuine prayerful consideration because Paul's really concerned about misrepresenting God in first Corinthians 15. Now it's over major doctrine, like the resurrection, but we should be concerned about that in small details. Well, we see it. I mean, we see it like there's, there's a lot of, like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of denominations that are denying that these things actually happened. And how did they get there? Did they, they, when they were 10 years old and they started reading the Bible, they believed it. But now that they're they're quote unquote theologians, they're saying, well, maybe it didn't really happen. So, you know, it is, you know, you got to we have to protect ourselves at every step, because I know that for me, um, I, I know one of the biggest the, and the best practices for me is is to submit to my leadership because our leadership is the one that is teaching. And maybe if our leadership is not teaching this. Maybe we should find somewhere else to go. I don't know if I can they, say they, that. But. Well, my guess is because this has been such an absent idea, an absent hermeneutic, an absent discipline in large portions of the American church for a very long time. Most of them don't know. Uh, let me let me I mentioned the transfiguration. Let me let me explain it maybe in this this way because you see this happening in Paul's letters and in the epistles, just generally speaking, when the scripture talks about us being the body of Christ, is because you have Christians who say that miracles have ceased. Why? If we are ontologically 
the body of Christ, and we've been made so by baptism, why have miracles ceased? Because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Now, we don't get to decide when they happen. Like, we are not the, the originator. We're like, we're not the, the source for those miracles, but we are the body through which that power is at work. Right. And Paul says it. He says, death is at work in us, but life's in you. The gifts are, are present in you. you. You are abounding in all the spiritual gifts. He's talking, and what are the spiritual gifts, but the particular uh, aspects of Christ's resurrection power of his baptismal experience being manifest through the church? That's one. Here's a second one. There are some Christians that teach you shouldn't suffer, that there is no such thing as suffering. There's no such thing as sickness. I wish. But are you the are we the body of Christ? Yes. And does Christ suffer in the Gospels? Greatly. Why would we have any difference? You see, so what he is, who he is, and what he's doing in the Gospels is the paradigm for the whole experience of the church, which is what's being unpacked in the epistles and experienced as God's people in time and space through tradition. That's one of the reasons we go back and we look at Christian tradition and how it serves as a good plumb line for us and how we're reading and assessing the text of Scripture. So when we go back and we look at church history, are there seasons of mighty outpourings of miracles? Yes. Are there seasons of massive martyrdoms? Yes. Are there seasons when it looks like, quote, nothing is happening? Yes. We experience that personally. We experience that in local congregations. We experience that now globally right today. Think about where the church is growing so fast they can't get enough ministers. Well, is that in the gospel? Yeah. Right. Kinda, yeah. What does he say? What does he say in Matthew nine when he looks out upon the crowds? About the laborers? Yes. Yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought yeah. I was doing. Right. <laughs> it's he looks out upon the people and he, they're sheep the without a shepherd. Running, yeah. Right? And so he says, Pray the Lord of the harvest. And what's the when he says pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers, what's the very next account in Matthew's gospel but the commissioning of the twelve? Right. Right. So are there parts in the church globally where it's growing so fast there's not enough leaders? Yes. Yeah. Are there parts of the church today where people are dying? They're suffering martyrdom. They're being tortured like Jesus was. Yes. Are there places where there are miracles that baffle explanation? Yes. Yeah. Are the angels still talking to the church? They're talking to Jesus. Do when, when we gather together for worship, is there a cognitive, cognitive awareness? Or maybe not even something we could articulate, but a, a profound spiritual awareness that we're present with the saints in heaven? Sometimes, yes. Because what the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration experienced at the top is not what they experienced at the bottom. But those are, this is what, what I mean by, and this is what the fathers are emphasizing with their spiritual reading of the, of the Bible. These are concrete, tangible realities now. And if we start changing and, and augmenting what we do, we will change doctrine. And then because we've changed doctrine, we will say why scriptures no longer apply. And that's either in present context going to manifest itself through adopting uh, Western liberal theology or a fundamentalist theology, and then to read them against each other. And both of those are contrary to the consensus understanding of the church and what the reformers are really championing, championing in the 1500s. And I think that's where we see the problem. Like I know for me, I'll say me personally, like I did not realize the history of the church. I read Acts. And then I, for me as a Pentecostal, I read Azusa Street. 
Like that whole. You mean the Holy Spirit left till that long? Right. You know, and that's 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 what I believed. You know, that's what I was taught. Um, but like, like it wasn't until, and I, and I say this all the time, it wasn't until I, I got into a global Pentecostalism class in my undergraduate degree. My, I was in my senior year and just being able to read and then just talking. And I'm just like, there's gotta be more, there's gotta be more. And that's, I was, you know, honestly, I was feeling empty cause I went and got educated ish and <laughs> you know, I, I, I got, I, I felt empty at the end of it. This was one of my last classes. I felt empty and I'm like, there's gotta be more. And that's when you came in father Dare. you came back from seminary and we started talking about the history of the church and I didn't know. I had no idea. So I didn't know that there was other ways. I, I knew what I knew and I thought I knew it. You know what I mean? And so just coming to realize that the church has been alive and awake since the beginning. There's, there's been no break. There, sure, there's been heresies. Sure, there's been problems. But you, you get that now. You get that everywhere. So just realizing that it's safe. For me, it's safe to stay within Orthodox Christianity. It's safe. So we've talked about this in some of the other podcasts, just my profound appreciation personally, right, for the fathers of the church. And how that started when I was a teenager. Right. And reading them uh, at length at certain points and then backing away from them, especially early on, uh, my early, early first 10 years of the ministry for me, because I didn't know what to do with it, because it was not what we were doing. We thought it was, but then you realize really fast, like, I don't know how to put this together. La-da, enter the Anglican communion. And that's not to say everything that's going on in the communion right now is right. But here's the thing. It never has been. Right. That's one of the things you learn in Christian history. It never has been. Think about some of the most profound debates that exist within the Anglican communion today. What were they debating in the pages of the New Testament? Did Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians? Did they have to become circumcised, adopt the entire law, uh, law and then, then they could become Christians? And Paul gets so fired up about this in Galatians. He says, I wish those people advocating for circumcision would just go the whole way and cut everything off. <laughs> You can't get more egregious. Like, I mean, there's some very strong feeling here. And we go back and we read the New Testament. And because we read it with, in this sense, such a fundamentalist right. approach, we say that doesn't exist. They didn't, they never disagree with each other. Or we read it with such a liberal approach. We say, see, they're not even really a church. They're just kind of loosey goosey. You know, it's all super charismatic. It's whoever's got the, the great gifts. Both of those are wrong. In the Gospels, Jesus institutes the apostolic ministry, the apostles themselves. Right. And in the book of Acts, we see them expand their ministry. There's only one ministry because there's only one altar because there's only one Eucharist, right? They expand their ministry through the appointment of deacons, fulfilling, extending, but fulfilling what the Levites were supposed to be. Right. And then we see them now they're out planting new congregations and they're setting in elders or priests who share with them in that apostolic ministry. There's only one. There's no free-for-all. It never existed. But neither did they agree with each other, which is why they have to have a council, right. which is why independent congregations, how, and I, I'm not saying this as an indictment, but it's a genuine question. How do you exist independently from the rest of the body? And you can't say, well, we have a spiritual unity. It's just not physical. Then you're in your church experience denying the incarnation. Because the sacraments tie everything together. Baptism is visible and invisible. The re and this is why I wanted to bring this up with Scripture today. I thought it would be a good thing. Uh, it's not going to be our last episode for the season, but close to it. To really give people something to chew and reflect on before we pick back up next year. Because this is super profound. 
if you are living your Christian life individually away from the local congregation, how can you do that? That's contrary to Scripture. Well, give me a verse. And see, that right there shows us that you're—are we really communicating how to read the Bible? You don't— you don't proof text. Don't go find three or four verses to justify a position. Go back and look at the whole narrative of the Bible. And then we could go back into some of these other topics, you know, like the apostolic succession and, and the sacraments themselves. The scripture is the written, like the written scripture is that is the visible. The invisible is the reality of the word of God, is the word himself. He's behind it. He's the, 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 the one sustaining and keeping it, which is why somebody can pick up a copy of the Bible. They don't know anything about God, anything about Christ, and they can start reading somewhere in it, and all of a sudden they're convicted of their sins, and they become Christians, and then, quote, magically, in an unknown way, mystically, mysteriously, they stumble into a church, and, and how did that happen? Or how many times have you heard the story of somebody was going up the road, and they had the radio on, and they was going through scan, and they heard just a portion of somebody preaching Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. All of a sudden, they're provoked to believe they confess Christ. Their lives change. It may be months before they find another church because they don't know where to go looking. Right? God's really at work through the Word. We need to be conscious about that. We need to, yeah. to intentionally go, go back to Scripture and read it as unchanging reality that creates the contours of the body of Christ. We do that. One, we're going to discover that's a lifelong, exhaustive process. But then we'll begin recalibrating the things in us that are out of whack and we don't even know it. You know, we need a good diagnostic tool, right? Well, the Bible happens to be both the tool and the means by which the solution comes, but it doesn't exist outside of the hands of the, of the, the bishops. They preserved it, and they're the, the chief teachers. What does Paul tell Timothy, the bishop in Ephesus? Guard the good deposit that's given you by the Holy Spirit. And what is that good deposit but the gospel, the gospel itself? So I think um, a good way that I've practiced this is um, I know uh, Bishop Tom Wright, he said the way to read Scripture is to read it a lot of it. He said when you're listening to a symphony, you you know, you don't want to just hear the trumpets. You don't want to just hear the violin or the fiddles, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to just hear one part, but when you're reading the the scripture, you read it as as it's intended to written, you know, the letters, they're written as letters, the epistles, they're letters. So read it all at once. So like for me that's <clears throat> that was one of my first practices after realizing this is to soak in scripture. And then if I don't understand something, you know, I'll come to you, Father Darrell, or I'll come to, uh, I'll read, so the, the church fathers have so much commentary, I, so much that I've, I've spent a lot of money. I've spent, <laughs> I've spent a lot of money, <clears throat> like in the thousands, to be able to have the resources to be able to read it because I want to read scripture how I'm supposed to. And, and for me, that's, that's been the practice that I've done is to do, is to read a lot of it and then read, okay. What did um, Augustine say about it? Saint Augustine, he's he's my man. He's my uh, he's my favorite uh, church father, and he's also my patron saint. And he was born on the I was born on the same day as him. So that's nice. I read a lot of his stuff, and it, just reading the commentary really helps focus you in because you'll read it and you'll be like, okay, that's first of all, I didn't see that in there. I didn't pick that up, and then they're like, okay, I thought that, but. Oh, I, I was way off on that one. You know what I mean? That's, <laughs> that's right. that that happens more more yeah. often than not. But you know, that's a good practical way for me. Yeah, I think I can't remember when you posed this question. I don't know if it was like a personal conversation, but the question was, you know, is personal Bible reading a good thing? Mm. 
And when you start looking at a lot of these concepts, and I'm not, first of all, to go ahead and preface this, I'm not telling people to start breaking their Bibles. Chain them up. <laughs> um, but if you think about even the context of what how Scripture was being um, digested, mm-hmm. it was never a standalone. It was it always came with some kind of uh, teaching or explanation. It wasn't just a bunch of people like, oh, let me pull this app out of my, you know, my pocket and read this. All right, that's good, and then move on. Um, it, you, just like even what Alex was saying, like allowing like the, the fathers or um, going to your your leadership and saying, "Hey, let's let's talk about this. How important that is to um, not just gloss over a lot of these undertones and the nature of what is being said. Yeah. Like you having someone that does understand it, or even asking these questions. So maybe you and your leader can both understand it. You know that that might be the case. Yeah, we don't want to read the scripture individually." But we do want to read it personally, right? And I think that's what you're saying. Uh, to to the point you in quoting N.T. Wright, Alex, uh, and I was sharing this with somebody the other day. How much of the morning office and the evening office is scripture reading? Most of it, large chunks, right? And then when you think that 80 percent of the prayer book is just the Bible anyway, right? Right? People think that they're praying because they're talking. Most prayer is not you talking, but you listening. And listening is not in an Eastern mystical sense where you just clear your mind and let whatever comes into your head be the word of God. No, no, no. Listening to God is hearing scripture. And we, when we remember that the Bible was written to people who couldn't read so they could hear it, start reading your Bible passages aloud and hear with your ears. Or one of the things I like to recommend to people is get a translation that you don't normally read from on YouTube and listen to it, a good one. And you're going to hear echoes and quotations and allusions. And, and um, if it's a good translation, you'll hear the same use, the same word used in the same passage a lot. And so you hear the author really emphasizing this point, uh, that point, right? Whatever it is. Those are all good practices. What I'm hoping that we take away from this particular episode is the ontology of Scripture, that it doesn't change and that its meaning doesn't change. And it doesn't mean one thing in one place and another in another place, or it means one thing at one time and another thing at another time. Look at the moral and ethical commands in Scripture. They don't change. So why do we change them? Or why do we only gravitate towards the ones that make us feel good? That's the danger with individualized readings. Because, and this is the warning in the canons from 1604, from the Church of England, when they said that nobody could have their own private fast days or their private Bible studies. Why are they saying that? It's because of what happens when those things are going on. People create their own form and then say that that form is really the intention of God. And then, because now the, the with the rise of, uh, in a positive way, you know, a charismatic renewal, the negative twist is, well, God told me to create this alternate form. And this alternate understanding. Yeah, but where's that in scripture or in history? Well, it's not in history because history's wrong. It's in the Bible because the Bible says it. Then you have already undone and contradicted the exact thing that you're doing. You've gone backwards. You don't even know that you've done it. So we want to understand the being, the ontology of what is the word. And then specifically think about how the whole Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. So he becomes the walking temple. That's what he is. 
And then the church becomes that walking temple because we're his body, and that doesn't change. So whether we're talking moral commands, ethical commands, liturgical uh, commands, uh, ministerial commands, all of those injunctions in the text of Scripture are still applicable, and cultures rise and fall to that not the other way around. So when we go to apply scripture, we're not looking what things apply or we're not looking for what scriptural truths apply or not apply because it all applies. Application is how do we explain it so that it's better obeyed? You see the difference? So we don't go and we look at some of the scriptural commands about gluttony or theft or human sexuality and say, well, these don't apply anymore. No, it's quite the other way. They very much apply. What we have to figure out is how do they apply in a culture that says that they are okay? How do we explain it so more people understand that it is the word of God and they need to keep it? There's a difference there. And if we are approaching scripture from one of those two category areas we started with, we're, go- we're not going to do that. But we are supposed to preach the gospel to all the world to make disciples of all nations. And part of making disciples, that initial event is what? Baptism. Bapt- yeah, sorry. Yeah, baptism. Look at the number of Christian denominations that say baptism isn't an expectation of God. And they'll say, well, because whatever their reasons are, they've made some interpretive application so that baptism doesn't apply. Think about that. Yeah. And then you've got other denominations doing the same thing with other things. And all of that has, all of us, not that, but all of us have to be brought to that judgment seat now of God's word revealed and see if we are really lining up with it. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things that we have as Anglicans is because what are we but the, the Catholic Church under Scripture. And that Scripture doesn't, it's not loosey-goosey. You know what I mean? That scripture is not, it applies here or there. It means one thing here or one thing there. No, it's got a universal, consistent understanding. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, like talking about, especially the Great Commission. Just because even when you start looking at it, if you understand like the ontology of scripture, um, it is easier applied to the nations. It is easier brought to the nations. Because... Um, you know, so many times you look at mission and how it's done, um, it's because they don't – the ontology is understood. They understand a culturalized, culturalized version of that, and then it is a translation of a culturalized – like it's just mm-hmm. literally like the same thing. Like go on Google, copy – like write a phrase in English, translate it into Spanish, and then from Spanish to Russian, and then, I don't know, Russian to um, so whatever language, and then bring it back into English. And you're so far from the original translation. It's like, it's crazy. I'm going to try that. Yeah, it's 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 odd. It's Christmas a really- break plans. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess what I'm saying is, um, I think understanding ontology, you get you truly do get back to the original intent, undertones, themes, um, just everything and, and what it was meant to be and what it is meant to be. And it's easier to apply that to cultures than trying to translate it through multiple cultures and over time. One of the best ways, and I think, I see we're running long there, Caleb. I think one of the best ways to start to really appropriate this is not to go into extensive word studies, as much as I recommend that to people, because I do, but to start to pray, pray through the accounts in Scripture. So, you know, everybody should have a personal altar at home, someplace where they pray. Open up any of the Gospels, 
open up, uh, well, we're year C in the lectionary, the Gospel of Luke, open up Luke's account of the baptism. Or open up, we're coming into, we just finished the Annunciation. Like if you if you hear this next week, open up Luke's account of the Annunciation where uh, Gabriel appears to Mary, or because it'll be after Christmas, open up where, um, right? No, this is coming out on Christmas Eve, isn't it? Yes. Yes. This week. So, yeah. yeah, this week. So you could you could listen to this. Uh, you could use the, the birth passages in Luke's gospel. Read them and then just slowly read over them and prayerfully meditate on it and recognize that that is more than a historical event. It is a present spiritual reality. Amen. Let me give you an example with the Annunciation. Is Mary less blessed today than she was when she first became pregnant with Christ. No. Yeah, tune in next week, right? <laughs> because we'll talk about her uh, in the next episode. Uh, because what does, what does Gabriel say to her? You will be blessed. He says, hail, full of grace. Elizabeth says the same thing. And then she says, all generations are going to call me blessed. So how many American <laughs> Christians do you know that stay in step and want to be like Gabriel and be like Elizabeth and still call her highly blessed. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. See, that's an ongoing reality. Now, she is not pregnant with Jesus in the sky, okay? She's not walking around Nazareth still pregnant with Christ. Elizabeth is not still leaping in front of her at the greeting. John the Baptist is not still leaping in the womb. The physical nature of that's gone, like the historical event is over, but the reverberation, the ontology of that spiritual reality still exists. And when we go back and we read the account in Scripture, we are summoned by the Holy Spirit to participate in the graces that are there recorded for us. And so I think we need to conclude with that because we've covered a lot of stuff with this one. And if people can start to just pray into the text of Scripture this way, watch what happens and keep a prayer journal close at hand. And I think this is going to generate a lot of questions. And so um, definitely send those in because those are good discussion points, even either for us to directly answer or it might be worked in. It's, it's, yeah. This is a very, this is a lot to chew on. And we kind of, we, we have the benefit, you know, we do have Father Daryl here, and we can throw ideas, <laughs> and he doesn't call us a heretic when we tell him stuff. You know. Ask why. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, bring the bring like send those in, like uh, you know, to allow a healthy place to discuss these ideas. Well, I think we definitely threw a lot of ideas out there for people. It's definitely something to think about. You know, I mean, it doesn't hurt to listen to the thing twice. You know, if you have to. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You do what you feel like you got to do, I guess, in that. <laughs> But, Just don't turn it off midway. You'll, you'll probably yeah. do something fun, right? Yeah. I hope. Because, like, think about it. If you're already mad in the middle of it, like, how much more mad could you get? So, <laughs> might as well just finish it out. Because there's a chance you could not be mad at the end of it. But then, you know, if you're still going to be mad, you're still going to be mad at the end of it. So, nothing gained, nothing lost, you know? But, uh, yeah. Um, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, once again, I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... Alex. Adam. And I'm Daryl. Enjoy reading your Bible. <laughs>